I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm talking with Alastair Cotton from Integrated Finance. Integrated Finance is one of those companies whose name does a pretty good job of describing what they do. Uh, They're basically providing an integrated core tech solution for businesses that operate online, like fintechs, but also including some more traditional businesses, too. Alastair and his team say that their mission is to create infrastructure that enables the next generation of fintechs to build the future of financial services. Basically, they're making it easier for innovators to focus on the innovation part because Integrated Finance has already built the core services that every fintech needs, and then they then in turn provide it as a service. So an innovator or a startup is working with a single interface, a single API from Integrated Finance. They do the maintenance of all that from tech to compliance, et cetera, and then they aggregate multiple suppliers into a single interface, an API. The founders say that they started the company because they needed that. They needed a service like that for a fintech that they were developing, and because they couldn't find it, they built it, and then they decided to offer it to everybody else. I love this kind of stuff, not only because it's a great model for how innovation really happens in the real world, but because it creates a fundamental asset for the digital commerce community. This is the equivalent of putting a four lane divided highway where there used to be a gravel road. Uh, It just puts a multiplier on everybody's effort, creates faster GDP growth, which is to say that it makes people's lives better at a faster rate, which is terrific. So stay tuned for lowering barriers in fintech, a dive into some of the nitty gritty of what integrated finance does, and then a look at the future of fintech from Alastair Cotton's perspective. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Alistair, thank you for joining us on Commerce Code. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, Where are you joining us from? I'm here from sunny London, Dan. Thank you for asking. Well, very good. Well, look, we are here to talk about integrated finance and, and what you're doing there. To my way of thinking, to kind of democratize access to financial technology. Uh, this is something that I think thematically software has you know, sort of done or an arc that software has run in many different industries. In other words, it starts off being expensive and complex. And then entrepreneurs and innovators like you come along and say, hey, let's make this more accessible to a broader range of folks. So thematically, in my mind, like that's kind of what you're doing and what we're talking about. But I'd love to hear in your words, what is the thing you've created with integrated finance and what is it meant to do? Well, I think your description about complex to a less complex is exactly the right kind of trend that's been going on. If I can just frame what we're trying to do in a historical context, kind of financial services technology has gone on the same journey really as much in the same way as much of software has gone in the sense that 10 years ago it was kind of monolithic expensive and complex and what's happened over the last few years is successful entrepreneurs as you rightly described kind of have unbundled this stack of 
what was kind of bundled together services into individual kind of companies that have raised the bar in that very specific case that they've been built for. And the number of kind of individual pieces of software has absolutely exploded in financial services, be it from, you know, customer identity to core banking software to compliance software and all of the supporting services that go around finance. So first of all, that's great because there's way more choice and the, the, the level of service has, has really increased. And that brought the cost to someone trying to create a financial services business down to a degree. What's really happened alongside that, and this is the technology driving it really, is that there's been an explosion of these firms and the APIs that kind of power them. And that kind of puts quite a big load from a technological perspective on someone building something in the financial services space. And so what was kind of a very expensive piece of software is now 10 pieces of software, which is great and individually much, much less expensive than the, the, the bundled together piece. But there's a cost to businesses to do this and it's all technological. And where integrated finance comes in is we are trying to build a platform that kind of aggregates lots of the key services when you go to build a financial platform together into a single API so that customers can build on top of that API rather than having to pipe all of these different things together. And and again, you've you've nailed the trend. This is kind of the, the next logical step in reducing the cost of building financial services businesses in the long run, making them easily piped together. Uh, And we do that by offering our platform in the background that kind of does the piping for our customers so that they can focus on building all of the customer touch points, which is so important in differentiating their product. This might not be a good analogy, but I'm kind of imagining like a stereo receiver that you can just plug all kinds or maybe like better yet, a, a CPU that with a ton of USB ports that you can sort of plug different peripherals into. Uh, so you're kind of dealing with one thing. I think that's right. You could even probably say a universal plug, something like that, you know, something that you take on holiday with you to make sure that your electrics work in a different plug country. So imagining and just because uh, I think this might be a reasonably typical person listening to uh, Commerce Code and might even describe the host. Um, imagine somebody who understands finance pretty well, but technology sort of mileage varies. Right. And so in plain English, what would you say are, you know, the I don't know, three to five most common critical pieces of software, as you've described it, that companies that fintechs need to be able to work with, but maybe would struggle to have to deal with them all separately. And so there are, so to speak, the things that are being plugged into that common platform you guys are building. You can kind of describe what we do as creating bank accounts for our customers. And that is made up of a couple of different kind of key pieces of, of infrastructure, which is the physical you know, bank account itself, which is a, you know, an endpoint on a network like ACH or Faster Payments or something, usually a set of numbers. There's a card that you would attach to that bank account so that you could spend money. And then the, at the start of that journey, you need to be able to onboard your, your customers within the local regulations. So there's software that helps you do that really, really, really well and really uh, simply. And then once your customers are making transactions, you need to make sure that they're not paying the wrong sorts of people, that they're not you know, spending way more than they suggested they would, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really cards and bank accounts and then the compliance at either end of that process that we bring together in a platform for our customers. And then as you scale up your business, your financial services business, you'll plug in I don't know, a bank in a new geography or someone that gives you the ability to convert currencies. And again, we help you slot those new services in seamlessly so you don't have to constantly invest in your back-end infrastructure. Got it. You know, I think of the fintech world as being so just incredibly both active and diverse, right, in terms of the different kinds of organizations. So 
curious what would be the typical kinds of fintechs that you find are kind of most you know in need of or, or, or most attracted to what you're able to provide? We serve a few different use cases, and I would say they're always trying to embed banking into whatever they've built. And that could be explicit in the sense that they are building a digital bank. Uh, and so bank accounts, cards and compliance are kind of front and center in their offering. And they're usually trying to offer that service through to a niche audience rather than kind of a very wide, broad-based set of customers. So that's one one use case. The others are kind of doing the same thing, but they're bolting in banking into what they're offering their customers. So that's kind of B2B lending companies who want to control the flow of funds into and out of the people that they're lending to. Crypto companies, again, issuing bank accounts so that their customers can send and receive funds in fiat into their, into their wallets. And investment companies, it's exactly the same use case, i.e. they have lots of customers and they're able to issue bank accounts in multiple currencies to be able to send and receive funds on behalf of those customers. And they don't necessarily have the, the know-how or the technological background to be able to kind of build all of that infrastructure themselves. So they would use a piece of software like integrated finance to help them on that journey. You know, in everything you're saying, I'm hearing a lot of stuff that in terms of cross-border or multiple, you know, different currencies, jurisdictions and, and that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, is that one of the harder parts for, for you guys to build? I mean, it's got to be one of the harder things to deal with if you're, if you're a fintech, you're trying to get going, you start to realize the complexity of all that. But is dealing with the multiple currencies kind of one of the hardest things? I think you're right. The unfortunate thing, given the way the world is, that is a lot of businesses really need to be kind of default global from day one. They can't just focus in one jurisdiction. They need to kind of be selling it across multiple markets. So yes, it is hard, but they do need to consider it as part of their business model from quite early in the process. We've engineered the platform to be multi-currency from the day that we started this. Our background is in kind of cross-border payments. So it's our specialism, I would say. And so we thought that we would put it into the platform very, very early on. It's probably more front and center in Europe because of the multiple currency mix that's going on than say the States where you know the dollar is kind of the single currency around there. But I think any business that wants to kind of deal in multiple geographies needs to needs to deal with the cross-currency thing. And you're right, we, we make it relatively simple to be able to deal in multiple currencies and multiple geographies from, from very early on. Well, Alistair, regulatory challenges are, are hard for everybody. And they're even harder when you're dealing with multiple countries. I wonder how you all think about handling multiple countries as a provider. And, you know, how, how challenging is it for you? It's probably our biggest and hardest challenge that we tackle with our customers. The hurdle for compliance in general has increased significantly over the last few years and even in the last month really has ratcheted it up even further. And there's a couple of ways that we approach this. One, from a workflow perspective, we can build kind of best-in-class workflows for our customers to be able to do certain aspects of their compliance checklist for, for each customer. And the second is making sure that we're working with best-in-class providers in multi-jurisdictions so that our customers are able to pick and choose and combine together the ones that work for them. Banking and banking as a service and building financial products is quite nuanced and varies between use cases and, and geographies. And so it's really important to have the flexibility built into our platform so that each customer is able to kind of create the right flavor of compliance based on their banking partners and their own preferences so that they're able to serve their customers in the most efficient manner. I started this conversation with the phrase democratization or democratizing financial technology. And I'll, I'll say that while having a standard tech platform is obviously important and an affordable and accessible one to democratizing things. You know, another thing is just process. And your mention of all, all of those words there were just your mention of checklists. 
I'm a believer in the importance of that. And, and when you get to common checklists that people are accustomed to and used to and they become templates, that's kind of the way to really handle regulatory stuff in multiple different locations or even just in one. So, you know, that that to me, I think, can sometimes take something that, that seems complicated and make it, you know, simpler. And that can be a big part of the service that you provide. I think that's right. And touching back on democratization, I guess historically financial services companies were built by finance guys who kind of understood the nuance and the back end processes that they need to go through. Increasingly, businesses should be built by people who know the customers best, right? Not necessarily who knows finance best. Finance, you're right, is ultimately just a set of checklists. And if the platform can help you know, people who really understand their users and what financial services they want to provide to those users... They don't necessarily need to know all of the kind of semi-boring processes in the background to make sure that it's delivered in a safe manner to, to those customers, just that it works, right? So I think that's part of that democratization process, getting people not from financial services backgrounds, building fintechs. I feel like we've laid out more, more or less what you guys are doing. And the interesting thing with anything like this, of course, is to try and think forward about what's the impact of it? You know, how does it impact the market? How does it change the competitive landscape? And so I'm going to just rattle off um, some different, I guess, categories. And then I'd be interested to get a feel from you of, you know, where are we as we make the technology that underpins being able to compete in the marketplace? As you all and others make that stuff more available, what happens here? So neobanks, different kinds of lending and credit, crypto, you know, I'm in conversation with these different kinds of, you know, companies every day, right? Just sitting in the middle of this stuff and investment companies, um, embedded finance, embedded banking, all of that, such an explosion of that activity, even though it's still relatively, I think, early in terms of making the underlying technology easy to use, highly accessible, affordable, etc. And you guys are part of increasing that accessibility. Do you think that we see even more activity in the, for example, neobank sector? Or do you think even more activity in, in the embedded banking or embedded finance sector? Because it seems like there's so much already. I wonder where you think we are in the arc, because it could be that we're just early in the process. And as people like you make it more feasible to go out and create another embedded finance product, that we'll see even more of it. So my kind of long-term view is we are at the start of kind of a fragmentation. So if I start at the end or where I kind of see the market going is, and we have a little bit of this, you know, going on already, is that financial services will go away from being delivered by financial services companies directly to the end user. And that by that, I mean, you logging into your bank and seeing your balance or logging into TransferWise to make a cross-border payment. Like I, I, I see that going away completely but not the service itself. The service will be embedded into the platforms where we spend all our time, right? So that could be, I can pay you via WhatsApp, or I could get a credit card from Apple and it's all within my phone. That's the kind of the direction of travel. So financial services being delivered in the background into systems where you know humans like to spend all their time. And the way that that'll happen is kind of the way that I've described where th these companies will need to piece together hundreds, potentially tens of hundreds of different providers to be able to deliver this service globally. And the way that they'll be able to do that is by the creation of this middle layer, this orchestration layer that is able to, on the one hand, speak to the big platforms and on the other hand, speak to all of the regulated providers of these services and allow both to be able to interact with each other in a much more streamlined way. 
And it's probably the middle layer that I've just described there where it's kind of the last thing that gets built uh, and we're in the early stages of that. I guess, again, if you think to the end state, everything's payment-wise is going to be kind of in real time, default global already mentioned. And so if it's not the big banks providing this, it's a plethora marketplace of much smaller providers doing it all over the globe. There's a lot of work to do to make sure that they can all talk to each other. I've had this conversation with members of the Digital Commerce Alliance a a fair bit, and we've talked about banking maybe becoming like a utility. I don't know if that's really the right image necessarily, if I've come up with the right or what the right image would be. Here's, Here's how I would think about it, though. You could imagine getting to a world, and it's so contrary to how we've all lived, right? So you have to like really kind of exercise your brain. But you can imagine getting to a world where you say, like, well, where is my money? First of all, it's sort of an abstraction, number one, and, and, and always has been. But number two, I would need to read the fine print of perhaps my iPhone contract in order to find out, quote unquote, where it might be. And maybe it's just with multiple different institutions because Apple is handling all that on my behalf. And they're making sure that there's never more than the you know maximum FDIC insured amount in some location or they're doing nightly sweeps in order to optimize the location of the funds or right, whatever. And that really, it would be a little bit like asking somebody where the family photographs are being held in the cloud. And you'd say, God, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but I also don't care. I mean, do you think that that's like the, some, sort of, some sort of vision of the end state? I think maybe warehouse or cloud is a good analogy. I like it. I think you're right to highlight where people's money is held ultimately as being very important. The recent flight of deposits from the smaller banks in America up to the, you know, systemically important institutions highlighted really that kind of government guarantee almost is really important when things get a bit dicey. And so I think warehouse is the best way of, or at least the best way I can think about it in the sense that I see those big banks as warehouses of money rather than being customer facing directly. Eventually they provide the balance sheet to be able to service the the tech that's sitting on top of them that will service the apples of this world. Yeah. Well, and as we just discovered, you know, the government definitely doesn't have everybody's back unless it absolutely does, except for they're not going to do it always, but they probably will. So yeah, that's so that's so that's where I Yeah, no, it is very interesting, right? And and you you kind of think, well, if you had a flexible enough, so for example, as I kind of conjectured, you could have a world where you say, look, on an automated basis, the service somebody is providing to me is to make sure that, because I mean, look, the FDIC might just decide that they're only going to insure, you know, $50,000, but it wouldn't even make any difference at that point. Because if you had the thing automatically just sweeping between different utility warehouse providers, right, they would just make sure that no warehouse ever had more than $50,000 in any given account. And then at that point, you'd look at the whole thing and say, okay, so in effect, the government is backstopping everything just because of how it's been. So I think you could imagine a world where regulation and the actual practices in the sector because of fluid IT perhaps might be sort of in a race with each other. And, you know, that's pretty easy to imagine that developing. But again, like, you know, what what you guys are doing is making it, I guess, easier for an innovator to have an idea, right? Somebody's working at Visa, they've got all the experience, they've got all the knowledge, and they're kind of deciding like, hey, do I go out and create a new thing? And you all are selling them the shovels and buckets and other kinds of stuff necessary to go do their work and do it easily and affordably, if, you know, is how I kind of think about it. I think, I think that's right. Our mission is to increase the number of you know, financial services companies created every year by consistently bringing down the cost of doing so. So what you said is spot on. 
that's a pretty cool way of thinking about that's a simple way and I think an effective way of thinking about your mission, right? Just increase the, yeah. the activity levels. It is a marketplace. It, I think as hard as it is to explain to people now, perhaps especially young people, you know, how sort of money works or like how economics works. I think it's going to be really hard to explain to our grandkids how it used to work, you know, because I, I don't know where I don't know where we're going to be then. But it might seem hard to understand why why things were the way they were, let's say, for the bulk of the 20th century. I think that's right. And going back to the utility kind of analogy, you can see the different railroads almost of, you know, fiat money, crypto, central bank digital currencies kind of all running in parallel at the moment, but they're going to converge over time. And I think interoperability between all these forms of money will be another feature of the next five years, I would say. So much wider adoption and acceptance of all these different types of private and public created money. That has real, I'll resist a temptation to talk big picture public policy stuff about the significance of, you know, U.S. dollar transactions versus other, other things. But I mean, I'll just, I'll flag that, I guess, which is to say that one of the things that preserves the global order right now is the sort of the oil dollar kind of relationship and the fact that so much stuff is there. So I think that's an interesting thing to tag. We maybe have you, once you've succeeded in, in contributing to the, the destabilization of the entire world order, Alistair, we'll have you back on. We'll have you back on. We could talk about how that went for you. But I think it's super closer, I think, to, to what we normally talk about at DCA in terms of just the companies we're dealing with this. It is remarkable to think to me that you could, I, I hope, imagine a world where I can earn points at, you know, a bundle of like Starbucks or it's whatever, but like those are fungible enough. And maybe Web3 helps that to happen. Maybe it relates to crypto. Maybe it relates to Bitcoin. I don't know. But and that allows even more innovation. But it it feels to me like it will make it harder to maybe earn a profit for certain players, maybe the traditional banks if it just becomes that chaotic. I, I don't know what your what your vision is or what your view is of, of how soon we are gonna get there to having these different kinds of currencies really, really transacting, not just like on the margins, but closer to the center of people, how people spend. Well, I think kind of the mind-bending addition to what you've just said as well is we're going through this period where for the first time, we're kind of moving away from human-human transactions towards software transacting with each other, right? Which is going to fundamentally change what the transactional systems that we have now kind of need to do and will look like in the future. By that, I mean, I can really imagine my Alexa needing to buy something itself from a web store in, let's say, the US, and that web store being kind of serviced by another piece of software. And so there's no human interaction whatsoever. How does that work? Whether that's smart contracts or what, I don't know. But I think the, the transition to away from human-human transactions into software-software transactions is really interesting to me. And I don't know the answer. I just find it fascinating. And it's going to be some combination of all of the rails that we have at the moment. As crazy as that sounds, it also sounds right. Almost as crazy as the fact that I haven't even been here for the last 20 minutes. You've just been interviewed by ChatGPT with like a voice automation <laughs> thing. It's remarkable. No, it does make sense. And I guess you just have to have some kind of level of authorization. I mean, look, in a super primitive way, when you put in a limit order, you know, what, 20 years ago, this possible on, on E-Trade and said, you know, do the following thing right, when a certain price hits on a certain stock. I mean, you know, in a sense, right, you've authorized a machine to, you know, do a thing. And, and so one can imagine exactly what you've just said and that there just would need to be, I mean, it's as with so many things, right, authentication and authorization and, and confidence, right, that that was all went back to the human in question. That kind of takes me, I wanted to touch on a couple of last things here in this conversation. You know, one is 
talk a little about embedded finance and just get your angle on that and what you see happening there. Again, I, th- I guess you guys, you know, you kind of sit in the center of things too, right? We have a certain vantage point at DCA. We just talk to all different kinds of companies in digital commerce all the time. And you do too, right? Because you're, you're providing this sort of platform that, that serves so many different kinds of organizations. So curious about embedded finance, interested in, you have kind of an angle on fintech sort of challenger banks and personalization. We talk about personalization a lot because many of the companies we work with really are in that sort of tailoring and kind of business. So I want to, I want to hit that, but let me just start with, with embedded finance. I mean, you know, that's a, I don't want to call it a buzzword. I mean, it's, it's a powerful idea. It's true. But I think a lot of times the sense in which it's sort of a buzzword is sometimes it gets used and I'm not totally clear on exactly what people mean by it sometimes, even though I think we all know kind of what it means. What do you think is the next phase or the next thing that's exciting to you that's going to be happening in embedded finance? Like, where do you think this goes in the next couple of years? So I think the first thing to say about embedded finance is it's it's definitely a buzzword. It has been around for a long time. In the UK, for example, you know, a big retailer, Tesco, had a bank all powered by pieces of software, you know, typically embedded finance use case. And it goes back to democratization piece. It's just the costs of any firm wanting to embed financial services into its core offering. It's just the cost is dramatically lower and the choice is way wider than it was even two years ago. I think it's still in its infancy. And I I think you touched on the, the personalization piece as well, which is really important. The people that want to do embedded finance or wanting to embed these these products into their services, really, the average size firm is decreasing. And I think that's to do with the internet, basically. They're they're serving a niche rather than the masses, and they need to do it incredibly well. And that embedded finance plays a part in that because it allows those businesses to be able to take more wallet share from each customer. I think that's a really important view on this. That said, I think the the big opportunity for embedded finance is weirdly around automation. So I think it's definitely in the larger companies as they kind of transform their products away. I'm thinking in-car payments. I'm thinking travel companies that would be traditionally booking hotel rooms, offering, you know, best-in-class travel cards, all those sorts of things. And alongside that, aggregators being able to piece together all these different financial services so that a customer doesn't have to have 27 different bank cards in their back pocket as well. So I think they're probably the big opportunities that I see. I have to say one of my favorite, um, I have kind of like a short shelf, you know, of, of favorite strategy and business books. And uh, zero to one is high on the list, partially because it's, it's accessible, it's easy, and it has the merit of not, not every book I'm into is, is like this, but it ha- there really is one big idea, which is you want to just dominate almost no matter what you're doing, right? It's sort of a a universal thesis. You want to dominate a really narrow space to start with, right? You don't try, you don't enter the popcorn market and say, hey, we're going to be the biggest popcorn company in the world. You go like salted caramel popcorn only, right? And then you become the salted caramel popcorn king of Chicago and then work your way out from there. And you might end up dominating like, you know, all packaged foods when you're done. But the point is that you start narrow and you go wide. So I guess you know, all of that is a wind up to saying, I got to believe that when the challenger fintech comes in and says, hey, we're going to do this cool thing, and maybe it is tailored and it's an embedded and it's a smaller market, the long-term goal almost has to be, you know, if they go public, especially, right, the long-term structure of it has to be, okay, and then we're going to take out adjacencies, then we're going to go through a period in the market of these things merging, and they, I, I don't know, like, they have to get bigger, right? And so I wonder if this is just the first step in that evolutionary process where you come back to larger scale organizations. 
I think I think that's right. And what you described is almost always a way to build users and then cross-sell them the bits of finance that are long-term profitable. Because unless you get to extreme scale, obviously payments can be quite low fee, let's say. And those bits are lending people money, helping them convert their currencies and helping them invest, right? So I think it's always a play to get towards uh, taking deposits as well and earning interest on deposits. I'd add to, to the last bit as well. So it's all a play to get to those places because that's where money is made in financial services long term. This comes back. So the last point being taking deposits, earning interest, like the fundamental magic of finance as it's existed for some hundreds of years. That gets you into, though, the regulated space with prudential regulation and other and other things where I think some some of the play for at least some fintechs is to try and dance around that and say, how do we avoid that regulatory constraint? Am I right to say then that what you guys and similar providers, I'm, and I say that just assuming that other people either will come in or compete or whatever, right? It's just how the market is. But that what you guys are providing is the ability to for them to say, well, no, maybe... Maybe we can take deposits and maybe it's okay if we're regulated because the compliance with or dealing with that kind of regulatory burden isn't maybe that burdensome anymore because a company like Integrated Finance is sort of doing some stuff that makes us less afraid of that. I mean, is that is that what you think is going to happen? Is that what you see happening? Yeah, I think another way to describe it would be that we give companies that do need a license a lever to be able to do more with much less. And so instead of having a team of seven compliance people, they can harness the technology to be able to do it with two. And and you're right, feel more comfortable kind of stepping into the regulated space, one from a kind of workflow and operational perspective, but also from a cost perspective, not only from a software element, but also from a human element as well. You don't need necessarily teams and teams of people to deal with this if the software is able to do the heavy lifting for you. You know, when I when I said it might be difficult to explain to our grandkids why why banking was the way it was, to the extent that actually, you know, the the first reason, Alistair, it's going to be difficult is because they're not going to be the least bit interested in hearing us rant about it. But you and I will be probably doing that anyway. And so number yes. one, it'll be hard to explain to them because they won't care. But no, I, what I really had in mind was, why would you need to fill an office tower with humans in order to do this thing? That doesn't seem like it would require that many humans. And of course, it only seems that way until you get in, involved and you start to realize like how complex it is. But by then, of course, the software will have, one hopes, will have managed away a lot of that complexity or simplified it, et cetera. And so that was really what I had in mind, right, was why is it that, number one, so many people have to do their thing in order to make this thing happen? And number two, why it would why that sector would tend to aggregate up into a handful, really handful, of very huge organizations that were, you know, that had like the vast majority of deposits in in the world. And that to me is the thing that I, I think will be different in 50 years or whatever, 50, I, I'll be 150 years, I got to say. So maybe I'm 35 years when I'm talking to my grandkids about this. And so that's what I think will be different. But that's what I had in mind was that the promise of what you guys are doing is to allow people to focus on creative, cool innovation, as opposed to just the the machinery of of compliance and tech and all that. Trust is absolutely at the heart of everything financial, as you know. I work very close to the Bank of England building, which is incredibly impressive structure and was built to engender trust, I'm assuming, because it's, you know, no one's ever going to get in there. High walls, you know, gated off, big doors, store the gold there, it'll be safe. And I don't think the trust element will ever go away. I think it's decreasing. And it it goes actually, this is a super interesting point about the Apple product that they just launched in terms of, are we passing a point here where 
Apple is has more trust. I'm more happy to have my money with Apple than I am to have it with JP Morgan. I don't know the answer, but it feels like the first kind of break from, you know, the big banks being incredibly trustworthy towards, I don't know, different players having the same levels of trust and and so the ability to store people's money en masse. Trust will be a great conversation uh, for, for maybe the next time we talk. We can put a tape flag on that one because I think that's a whole podcast unto itself and a, and a super interesting one. So we can review the trust barometer data before we uh, maybe record that sometime in the future. Alistair, it's been a pleasure. We've gotten into some mechanics and got our hands dirty in some tech stuff, but uh, also had some fun with uh, philosophical and, as, as you said, I think mind-bending considerations for the future. Best of luck with your work. I hope that you uh, allow other people to create some mind-bending stuff for all of us. And best of luck with it. I'll see you next time I'm back in London, I hope. Thank you, Dan. Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Over the weekend, while doing yard work, I was listening to The Economist's May 20th special report on digital finance. I always listen to The Economist. It comes out in full audio edition every Thursday. And the special report on digital finance is really well done. It even had some stuff in there that the kinds of folks who listen to Commerce Code probably wouldn't already know. So I'd say it's worth your time to read it or listen if you've got Economist access. The piece started, as Economist pieces often do, at the very, very beginning with the idea that people originally bartered with each other uh, before the development of easier exchange via money whether or not this is quite true as a matter of anthropology, it's certainly an acceptable potted version of economic history. And they said that the problem with barter is that uh, it involves too much friction, as they called it. It's just too hard to make a transaction work. Does the other person have something you want and you've got something they want, etc. I caught on to the word friction because I've been talking with DCA members lately about friction in digital commerce. And everything we do is certainly easier than barter, at least. I sure hope it is these days. But it's still true that many things in financial services are harder to carry out than they probably should be. Lots of clicks and keeping track of things, multiple steps where maybe there could just be one. The idea from some folks is that Gen Z just won't tolerate much friction or maybe any friction. So we just need to make everything frictionless or as smooth uh, as possible, one click. That sits pretty uneasily with financial services and particularly bank regulation. It's, it's hard to comply with stuff and be frictionless at the same time. So at the risk of carrying the metaphor too far, I've, I've also been thinking about productive versus unproductive friction lately as we've been carrying on these conversations and thinking about how DCA can intervene to improve the situation. And here's an analogy that helps me when we're thinking about reducing friction in digital commerce. Some friction is, from an engineering perspective, very good. So friction is what keeps a car's tires on the road. It keeps your hands on the steering wheel. It keeps your butt in the seat, for that matter. And perhaps most importantly, it makes the brakes work. So that's productive friction. And engineers aren't trying to minimize that. Far from it. They're, they're trying to, in some cases, increase it, but in any event, optimize it. But 
On the other hand, with cars, friction that comes out sort of in the form of heat in the engine is almost all energy loss. So we can call that unproductive friction. And combustion engines lose 60 to 70% of their energy to friction, and they turn what's left over into forward motion. Incidentally, electric motors are much more efficient than gas motors because they're simpler, and as a result, they have less friction. That's a, a big part of their promise overall in terms of energy efficiency. And for what it's worth, some of you may know, and I do because I'm a cyclist, that bikes are vastly more efficient than I think just about any other contraption. They convert 96 or more percent of energy from the pedaler or the rider into forward motion. And that's because the engines, if you will, are so simple and there's very little friction, but they rely on friction too: tires, brakes, handlebars, seat, same as a car. So this is just a way of illustrating that some friction, some effort, or an extra step here and there can be a value-adding element of a process. And if we go back to the bicycle or car example, some friction, the brakes, the tires, is absolutely critical. The whole thing would just not work at all if it weren't for some friction. So when we're looking to improve things in digital commerce or e-commerce generally by reducing friction, we are more precisely looking to identify and to reduce unproductive friction. That effect will be to move digital commerce from being maybe like a gas motor to being more like an electric motor, right? Less friction. But along the way, we're also looking to identify productive friction or even critically important friction so we can optimize it. That may have you thinking of the classic Steve Jobs riff on bicycles. And I'll say, if you haven't watched it lately or if maybe you've never watched it before, oh, it's kind of just a classic in the computer's world. So Google it. It's worth, you know, 45 seconds or something of your time. You'll find it right away. Steve Jobs bicycle, probably all you'll need. Basically, he points out that bicycles make humans the most efficient movers in the animal kingdom, though without them, we're actually not very efficient movers at all. And his point is that, of course, by analogy, computers are like bicycles for the mind. Okay. Well, to bring it back to Alistair and my conversation today, I, th I think the integrated finance folks have wiped out a whole category of friction that's on the back end, not the consumer facing side of fintechs and other players in digital commerce. And that's just huge, as I said at the outset. And I'm sure they'd have a perspective on what friction is still either unavoidable or maybe even beneficial because it serves an important purpose. It's still true, though, that from bikes to cars to other contraptions, engineers are still preoccupied more with reducing friction than increasing or even optimizing it because, and this is the last thing I'll say on this topic, it turns out that it's pretty hard to reduce friction and it's usually easier to increase it. So we'll keep working on it. I'm sure we'll have our work cut out for us for the rest of most of our careers to try and continue to identify friction and minimize it so that we can realize better results and returns for everybody. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.